Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching and listening from. If this is your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. If you fill out that short form online for us, well, as a way of saying thank you, we're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. We started this journey through the book of Daniel way back in January. Now we're entering the home stretch. So for much of the summer, we've been in the latter half of the book. It's full of apocalyptic prophecy. These teachings have been pretty rich in theology. And I really hope if you haven't watched or listened to the other ones yet, that you're going to go back and do so. You can download the notes on our website and follow along with each teaching. As we get to Daniel 10 today, I want to know an important shift that happens. So Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 contain the final vision that he receives and records. So I want you to think of the next few teachings as a single unit. We're not addressing different topics or prophecies with little cohesion to them. From here until the end of the book, we're looking at a single vision starting with how it was received in Daniel chapter 10, moving into the full explanation of the vision, chapter 11, and then wrapping everything up in chapter 12. There's a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started, okay? Daniel 10, verse number 1. In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, it's a Babylonian name, had another vision. He understood the vision concerned the events certain to happen in the future, times of war and great hardship. When this vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. And all that time, I'd eaten no rich food, no meat or wine crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and just kind of take a look at what Daniel's telling us. When you read Scripture and you see dates that are mentioned, try to remember to make a little footnotes, all right? Look up those dates. Find out what's happening because it really helps you see the bigger picture at play. So, for example, we know it's the third year of Darius and Persia are ruling Babylon. What does that tell us? Well, the final vision... Is happening around the same time as the events of Ezra chapters 1 and 2. So already thousands of Jews have gone back to Jerusalem and Israel, and they're beginning the work of rebuilding. Daniel hasn't. He's actually stayed behind and serves in the court, but a lot of folks have gone. He tells us that he's had another vision, and it pertains to the future with war and great hardships. It troubles him so much, he goes into a period of mourning for three weeks, doing exactly what he did in Daniel chapter 1, which is abstaining from meat and wine. This is what we sometimes call the Daniel fast. It's not a lifestyle for him. Rather, it's a temporary state he goes into when he really wants to seek God's will and direction. And that goes his actions um, in, in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, right? Because he's preparing his heart and getting right spiritually as he seeks God's wisdom. Let's move on to chapter 4, or verse number 4. On April 23rd, as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing and with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem and his face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze. His voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Verse number 7, only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men with me saw nothing. 
They were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. And my strength left me. My face grew deathly pale and I felt very weak. And then I heard the man speak. And when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted. And I lay there with my face to the ground. So this is his vision. It's not what you really expect him to see, right? I mean, you have beasts and wars and all that kind of stuff. And then you get this vision of a guy. But it's not as any guy, all right? So uh, we don't know for certain who the man Daniel sees is. But it's hard not to think of Jesus, you know, John's vision in Revelation. Um, or even Ezekiel's vision that he has in Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, Ezekiel 1 and this vision here are very, very similar, very close. Uh, and given what we know, what we're going to read about in a little bit in verse 13, it seems very doubtful that this is Jesus. It's probably much more likely that it's an angel or some kind of angelic being. We don't really know for certain, though, okay? So it freaks out the guys who are with Daniel. They take off. They can't see anything, but they're, just, they're spooked. And I think there's something, you know, to that. So our teaching today, it's going to be heavy on the spirit realm. It does exist. I really believe as humans, we instinctively know spirit realm exists. If we thought it was all fantasy, there wouldn't be so much fascination in our culture and entertainment with the supernatural on just a whole host of levels. We know something's out there. We can feel it. And these guys with Daniel, they certainly felt it. They felt it so much, they took off. And it freaks Daniel out too. Like he says he's gone pale. And then this figure uh, begins to speak to him. And look at what he says in verse number 10. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. That word precious there in the Hebrew actually translates to coveted. Can you imagine that you're so close to God, so in tune with Him, that God actually covets you, like He desires you. That's Daniel's relationship with the Lord. That's pretty cool. He continues, so listen to me, or so listen carefully <laughs> to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I've been sent to you. And when he said this, I stood up still trembling. Verse number 12, he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. And I've come in answer to your prayer. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. And so now I'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future and for this vision concerning a time yet to come. All right, let's dive into this a little bit here, okay? We're going to skip the next few verses that have a conversation between Daniel and this person. Daniel's saying, hey, I don't have any strength left, and the guy touches him, and suddenly the strength returns to Daniel again. I'm going to skip all that because I, I want to bring your attention to the last couple of verses of Daniel chapter 10 as well here and really kind of jump into this discussion on spiritual warfare, which is kind of at the center of this chapter. So I said a minute ago, um, that, that the, the being was probably an angel. And the big clue comes in verse 13, because we read the spirit of Persia stops his advance for 21 days. Kind of tell you, nothing's going to stop the power of God at work. No spirit can withstand the Lord. So the figure speaking to Daniel almost certainly has to be one of these angelic beings. Now notice too, there is some similarity to Daniel chapter 9 as well, right? So in, in Daniel 9, God gives a command as soon as Daniel begins to pray. Here, his prayer is answered 
the very first day he utters it, but it was delayed for 21 days because of a spiritual conflict. Makes me wonder how many prayers have been delayed because of spiritual warfare in our lives too, right? So all kinds of questions get raised when we read this passage. Like, who's the Prince of Persia? Are there territorial spirits? And for some of you, you're just kind of like, is spiritual warfare real? Is it actually like a thing? <laughs> and, and, and it is. We're going to talk about that here. I'm going to spend a lot of time today talking about spiritual warfare because what we see in Daniel 10 is a rare glimpse into that kind of fighting that's happening all around us in this unseen world. So the central teaching of this chapter is that God's people are not in conflict alone. There are spiritual forces at work fighting for us and against us. So let's start with the conflict taking place here in chapter 10. Daniel's prayer isn't the focus of this spiritual conflict but it's definitely like a subplot. Spiritual warfare, it's been happening since at least Genesis chapter 3. We know the spirit of Persia is demonic because he's fighting against the angels of God and delaying a message God is sending to Daniel. We know this demonic spirit is very powerful because it takes the assistance of Michael to help get this angelic being uh, even through to Daniel. So at the end of Daniel 10, in verses 20 and 21, we read this being will have to return to fight against the same prince of Persia and then another spirit prince from Greece is going to come, which really falls in line too with a prophecy from Daniel chapter 8. So what does this tell us then about the spirit world? Well, it gives us the glimpse into how things operate to a certain extent. So first, let's talk about the existence of territorial spirits. They, they do exist and it is affirmed, but not just here in chapter 10. We read about that in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9, for instance, right? God assigns the heavenly court. Some translations read sons of God. It's a reference to spiritual beings, to nation states and people groups. Isaiah 21, 21 through 23 provides a connection between the gods of the heavens and unrepentant humanity. They're eternally separated from God. Even in Daniel chapter 12, you read about Michael, who's first mentioned in the Bible right here in chapter 10. He's assigned to protect the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. So there, there are, in fact, spiritual beings assigned to specific locations and peoples, but we don't know to what extent. We don't know how many. We, we, we just don't know. We do know there are angels and demons who function in these roles. However, we're not told in Scripture as to how or even whether we should engage these territorial spirits. Very important, because I know it's popular sometimes in some circles to pray against the spirit of this place and that place. And look, we're not given any kind of instruction as to how to do that, or even if we should do it. Daniel doesn't do that. He actually leaves the matter to God and leaves the battle up to him. I think we ought to do the same thing. Now, let's hone in on spiritual warfare and what our role in it is, because we do have a role to play. Um, there's a real spiritual war and struggle occurring. We've been talking about that. In Genesis chapter 3, it introduces us to that conflict for the first time. Because behind Adam and Eve's decision to sin is temptation that comes from Satan. And that conflict that begins in chapter 3 and ends in Revelation is understood in spiritual terms from the curse that God gives the serpent in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. The redemption which follows describes the spiritual conflict from this curse between those who follow God and those who side with the enemy. Now, I know we don't like to think of God as a warrior, especially in our 21st century worldview that we think is just so enlightened. But throughout the Old Testament, that is who God is. 
He fights for his people, and he uses his people as tools for judgment against the evils of the world. You see that at the battle with the, you know, the Red Sea in Exodus 15, Jericho, Joshua 6, Assyria's fall, and Nahum's prophecies, and all over Scripture. All these are examples of, of instances where Israel knows their victory over evil is assured because God fights for them, not because they have great ingenuity or strength. In fact, there's even times when God trims down Israel's numbers tactically so they have the disadvantage. Think like Gideon, right? God wants Israel to know this is his victory, it's not theirs. In fact, before even engaging in warfare, Israel has to make sure it's God's will they fight in the first place. They didn't have like carte blanche to fight at will. This is why the Ark of the Covenant is taken into battle. If you're not familiar with that object, it's the symbol of God's presence before the temple was built. Um, even soldiers, they're expected to be spiritually prepared for battle, just as prepared as if they were to enter God's presence. So what that means is that warfare in ancient Israel as uncomfortable as it may sound, was akin to an act of worship, at least when God willed the nation to conflict. So following their victories, Israel's response was also to praise God. Many of the Psalms, like Psalm 24, 98, were written in celebration of victories on the battlefield. But Israel was also the object of God's judgment. That's why Daniel's in the Tigris River in the first place here in this chapter. But now, God's going to fight for his people again. And we see that. We see in Daniel chapter 7 that Christ is given victory over the beasts for the people of God. Chapter 8, evil human oppressors are destroyed not by human might, but by God's power. Chapter 9, the one who sets up the abomination that causes desolation, he finds himself again defeated by God's hand. So God is at work again fighting for his people on their behalf. But this time, it will take place in the distant future, and that causes a shift when we get to the New Testament. Listen to how John the Baptist announces the coming of Christ in chapter 3. Matthew 3, 11 through 12. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and carry his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he'll clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. That is not exactly how we picture Jesus, <laughs> right? We don't, you know, fire, death, and burn. We don't picture him that way. But John has in mind a coming Savior who's going to kick up spiritual warfare to a new level. So while he's in prison, John doesn't hear reports of judgment and burning. And in fact, he hears the opposite. Healings, exorcisms, preaching. Like he's not even sure if Jesus is the right guy. So he sends his followers to find out. What John may not have understood is that the spiritual warfare was being taken to a new level. Uh, Jesus was showing the conflict's not going to be against flesh and blood enemies of God's people. It's going to be with Satan himself. And so spiritual warfare, it's rarely seen in the Old Testament in a very cosmic way. Normally it took place between physical battles between the people of God and evil oppressors. But in the New Testament, the, the, the divine focus is very clear. It's going to take place between Christ and the enemy. And the irony is that the war is not even won by destroying your enemy. It's won by Jesus, the greatest warrior, dying on a cross. And that's what leaves us uh, with this like, like already but not yet kind of victory. Because he's won the war by dying on the cross, but battles remain to be fought. You know, when the Allies defeated the Nazis in Normandy on, on, on D-Day, it signaled the end of World War II. That was a victory that broke the back in Nazi Germany. It was only a matter of when, not if, the Nazis would fall. 
but intense battles still remained to be fought until the end arrived. And I think that's a perfect description of our current state. We've won the war through Christ's death and resurrection, but battles still remain until the end comes. So with that in mind, as we wrap it up here today, let me just give you three battlefronts where spiritual warfare still rages. The first battlefront is the present evil which exists in our world. Darkness emanates from institutions and people, from our, ourselves and others. Every human institution is afflicted with spiritual conflict between God and the enemy. I've got friends who work in the realm of politics and policy on both sides of the aisle, and I hear both sides say pray for us. Why? Because you better believe, man, spiritual conflict rages in the halls of government. The same governments which protect rights can also take them and inflict suffering. The same medical facilities, which give life in some states, now that Roe v. Wade's overturned, like in some states, they, they, they can still take it. The same church, same body of Christ that brought folks into God's kingdom, what gave rise to the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades and the sex scandals? Like evil exists, and it's in conflict with every institution and person in our present reality. Second battlefront is the fight for souls. We lead folks to Christ, but we minister to people. We are engaging in spiritual warfare on the same level that Israel did with Jericho and that Christ did with demonic forces. The Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, 18-20, it's a mission to take ground from the enemy, to bring people who are imprisoned in darkness and give them the freedom that Christ died and rose to give. We minister to those who are far from God. They're in the grips of the enemy, whether they realize it or not. And the enemy doesn't just take that. Like, he fights back, and he fights back hard. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians. I like what he says here. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 12. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you're raised to new life, because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Look at this. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And check this out. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Each life that says yes to Christ comes following a spiritual struggle in which Jesus defeats and disarms the enemy. And that leads us really into the third battlefront. Because once you say yes to Christ... The conflict's not over. It really just heats up. This battlefront is between the new self and the old self. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus warns us against casting judgment on others. Look at Matthew 7, verse number 3. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you've got a log in your own eye? And how can you think of saying to your friend, Hey, let me help you with that speck over there. When you've got a big log sticking out of your own. Hypocrite, he says. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. What a great reminder that we're in a constant battle with ourselves. I, I think this battlefront is the hardest for most of us because we battle against natural inclinations to sin, which we enjoy the most. And my struggle growing up was never alcohol or drug addiction or greed or theft or anything like that. I was never tempted with that kind of stuff. I struggled with living a life of, you know, purity because I, I know, like, I, I love women. What can, what can I say? <laughs> but the enemy knew that. 
And so my biggest struggles with sin, it was, it was lust. It was purity. Like sin is not something like important we despise. It's rotten eggs covered with chocolate sprinkles and cherries, man. We know it's bad for us. We know we shouldn't go there and eat that, but man, it tastes so sweet going down. It's just so good until it rots inside of us, right? Uh, the battle with sin continues while we're on this earth in this life. The advantage we receive as followers of Christ comes into play when we align our, our, our lives with God because nothing can defiantly withstand the power of God at work in our lives. Daniel chapter 10, it does give us an intriguing look into the spiritual realm and the conflict that ensues. But the purpose is not to answer, you know, all of our questions about the spiritual world and how it operates. The purpose is to remind us we're not in the spiritual fight alone. You know, God doesn't send us to fight by ourselves. He doesn't even call us to group resources with other Christians and, you know, fight this thing out, praying against that spiritual, you know, enemy and that, you know, prince of D.C., I don't know. Like, he doesn't do that. He sent Christ to fight for us. He won the war when he died and rose again. And while that war has been won, numerous battles remain ahead until the end. It's Jesus who shows us the way to victory on each of these battlefronts we touched on. And how, we, how do we do that? Well, it's through love and sacrifice, right? Following the footsteps of Christ. Question today is, are you on God's side? Are you allowing Him to fight your battles? And you can be sure, by the way, that you're on the right side. You can make Christ the Lord and Savior of your life. And you can be sure the victories that you face in, in, in the future are definitely yours if you will allow God to fight for you. In fact, if you're here today, you're not even sure if you would be on Christ's side. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm on God's side or not. I can just tell you right now, if you have to ask that question, you're not on God's side, right? It's not about if God's on your side or not. It's about are you on His side? And so you have a chance to say yes to Christ today and know for sure that you're fighting with the Lord on the right side. In fact, we're going to do that here today. We're going to say a prayer that makes Christ our Savior and our Lord. He's our Savior because He forgives us. He's our Lord because we submit our lives to Him. So if that's you today, just follow along with me. Lord, I, I thank You for who You are and for Your goodness and grace. I pray, Lord, right now that You would take the sin that I've committed, the wrong that I've done. Forgive me. I, I've messed up. I know I've done things I shouldn't have done. I know I've sinned against You and violated Your standards. I'm praying now. She forgive me for my sin. And I pray now that she cleanse me of my wrong. And Lord, from this day forward, I don't want to call the shots. I've done that, hadn't worked out. I want you to lead me. I'm going to follow you, submit my life to you, obey you. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. And so from today on, I'm going to serve you and you alone. Will you be Lord of my life? And full Lord, I pray now for those who are already believers, but they're fighting intense spiritual warfare. Encourage them today. Let them know you are fighting for them. You know, they're not in this thing alone. You're fighting for them on their behalf. You've won the war, but the battle rages on. And I pray, Lord, that, that you will encourage them today. If they're, 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 they're trying to minister to someone they love and care about. We know when that happens, spiritual warfare really heats up. And I pray, Lord, again, for encouragement. And I pray, God, for victory. And I pray, Lord, that as you bring that person into your kingdom, that spiritual struggle that's ensuing there, Lord, that you would defeat the forces of darkness that try to keep that person from entering into your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that that new life that comes to know you 
will be a new life marked by the grace and majesty and, and glory of God. And I thank you for what you're doing. And I thank you, Lord, for the lives and that you're touching and the battles you're winning right now as you fight for us. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Hey, listen, Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.